This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, and we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and they're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rasidiak, sharing a father-daughter story. He shares about parental love and how it's never relinquished by the passage of time distance, or circumstance. Here's Stephen. For as long as I can remember, the beach and I have been the best of friends. The sun, the surf, the sand, and me. That is, until Friday afternoons and the approach of another summer weekend. Suddenly, my BFF and I find our seemingly forever friendship mysteriously morphing into that of estranged acquaintances. Summer Saturdays and Sundays means crowds, and while my oceanic pal may like the additional company, I don't, so our friendship temporarily hits the pause button, only to resume Monday mornings when the sun worshippers camped along the ocean's edge are once again considerably fewer. She knew this. She even mentioned it when she called. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. This was our daughter, Tracy, inviting Karen and me to go to the beach with her on Sunday morning. A summer Sunday? At the beach? Seriously? My response was the same as my wife's. Absolutely, let's go. I mean, how could we not? So, there we were, driving over the sand, just short of the waves, early before the arriving crowds would begin laying claim to their temporary pieces of salty real estate. Tracy had mentioned that the tide and temperature might be favorable should I decide to bring my surf poles. I was impressed that she paid attention to such things, knowing her information had more to do with surfing than with my desire to attract some fish to the business end of my two baited lines. After watching the way the waves were breaking, Tracy chose for us the optimum place to park. I positioned my truck a safe distance from the surf and then got down to the business of rigging my gear while Tracy began waxing her board. Once our pre-water preparations were completed, we stepped into the sea simultaneously for different reasons, but ultimately with the same goal in mind. I wish I could say that Tracy rode some awesome waves that morning or that I landed a record catch, 
but neither would be true. The waves were gentle, and my baited lines remained untouched. But none of this mattered, because we weren't there to surf or to fish anyway. We came to the beach that morning to spend some time together. Although we'd plenty of phone conversations, Karen and I hadn't seen Tracy for most of the summer, even though she lived just eight miles away. Working nonstop at a couple of jobs, Sunday would be her one day off, and she wanted to spend it with her mom and dad, which is just what she did. Following her college graduation, Tracy began working at one, then two, then three jobs, all in our little resort town. When the autumn arrived and her summertime positions departed, so too did she for a job in Hawaii. Returning last June, she found another local beach-based position, and when the summer season ended, she returned to Hawaii in Waikiki. Oh, to be young. I once wrote a piece about Tracy growing up and how I was looking forward to her many milestones yet to come. Chubby little legs taking their first uncertain steps. First words, first tooth, first grade. Of high school and boyfriends, driving lessons, the college years. Suddenly, 5,000 miles separate us, and these milestones have come and gone, faster than I could ever have imagined. But still, my love and concern for her well-being remains everlasting, never to be relinquished by the passage of time, by distance, or by circumstance. And so, it's with a dash of melancholy and a dose of parental pride that I reluctantly concede. My little blue-eyed blonde baby dear has indeed grown up. And to be perfectly honest, this pop couldn't be any prouder. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. Should Tracy one day return and again ask if we'd like to spend another summer Sunday with her and my best friend, the beach. Of course, you already know what my answer is going to be. And good job on that, Faith. And that was Stephen Rasidiak sharing a father-daughter story. And we talk a lot about fathers. And so often you hear about fathers and sons but the impact of a father on a daughter, a mother on a son, a mother on a daughter. My goodness, we know what happens when people don't have either a father or mother, the hole it creates. Stephen Rasidiak's story, the story of his bride, Karen, his daughter, Tracy, his blue-eyed, blonde, baby girl, Tracy, here on Our American Stories.
come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself. And we continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And music is one of our favorite subjects. And rapper Tupac Shakur was larger than life. He was a complex man, and he was a fearless man. And you're about to hear a really remarkable story. His naked emotion and fearless personal revelation was a direct influence on all rappers. Quote, Every rapper who grew up in the 90s owes something to Tupac, wrote 50 Cent in Rolling Stone, paying tribute to Shakur as one of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Tupac was born into struggle in 1971 in East Harlem, New York. His mother was a leader in the Black Panther movement, but he grew up to become not just a multi-platinum rapper, but also a movie star. He was a lightning rod, a screen onto which millions of people continued to project their feelings about rap, race, and young black men in America. In a recording career tragically cut short after just five years, Tupac Shakur sold over 75 million records worldwide. Since his murder in Las Vegas in 1996, at the age of 25, Tupac's legend and impact have continued to expand across the globe. He's become an international symbol of resistance and outlaw spirit an irresistible contradiction, a definitive rap anti-hero. Here's Tupac just two and a half years before his assassination, sparking raw insights about rap, race, and young black men in America today. First of all, nobody could call me a sellout. I'm not, I'm not going for that. I'm not even in that. I'm not, I'm not looking for approval from the black community because we don't give approval. You know, we don't really do nothing but exist. So it's not like I'm, black people could tell me, you a sellout or you true blue. You know what I'm saying? It's not that. I'm not even caught up in that. But um, I can see that, you know what I'm saying? The one thing we do have in common as black people is we share that poverty. So the thug side is more closer to the poverty than me being rich. You know, how can I come to any community center, you know what I'm saying, sporting a, a Rolex, presidential, all these diamonds, and be like, look, we, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> gotta, gotta. <laughs> but now, when I say we, they know what I mean. I'm not saying, like, I live in this neighborhood, and but I'm a thug, and they thugs. They can relate to I don't even have to say that, you know what I'm saying? When I come, I don't have to say I'm real. They already know that, you know what I'm saying, from, from me, from me being me, from not pushing the thugness, but I know from the business that everybody in this business is always whispering in your ear about what you can't say, what you can't do, what you can't wear in this world and in this world. It's two worlds, a white world and a black world. All I did was stand in the middle, you know what I'm saying, and, and say I'm, I'm living in these, but I'm living in both worlds. I, I can go to the streets and survive and I can go out here and do my business out here. You know, everybody's getting pimped. Whether you work a nine to five or whether you work for yourself, you're getting pimped by somebody. That's not, the, that's not the crime. The crime is how long you allow yourself to get pimped. You have to come up. Everything is a come up. Everything is a struggle. You start from the bottom, work it to the top. It's like, it's not that you get pimped. It's how long you get pimped. You know what I'm saying? Because if you really look at this situation, it is not I who's being pimped. When you look at them white kids with Raiders hats on, it's the white folks getting pimped. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I'm making their future. I'm writing down their curriculum. Right now, what I write in my album today, when it comes out in two months, that's what white kids is doing. So who really is getting pimped? I'll be, I'll be, I'll, what I'm writing in my raps is what them white kids is going to be saying to their mamas and daddies when they come home. Who is getting pimped? You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm a high school dropout. You know what I'm saying? As far as my teacher told me when I was in high school, I ain't going to be And once my life is gone, it's gone. 
Can't nobody give it back to me. Not the judge, not the president, not the governor, not Calvin Butts, not Jesse Jackson. They can't do nothing but come to my funeral and talk pretty about how black people suffer. You understand? And as far as Jesse Jackson, my first acting job was at the Apollo Theater when Jesse Jackson was running for president in 1984. It hurts me for him to say anything negative about any rapper because we supported him. He should support us. You know what I'm saying? As far as his image, you know what I'm saying? What was he? What was he doing? You know, he should be the last person talking about gun violence when he sat right there while Martin Luther King caught one in the neck. You know what I'm saying? Things ain't really changed that much. I swear to God, nothing I ever say is meant to be um, something where innocent people get hurt. Nothing I ever say is meant to be like a end all, let's go do it right now. Nothing. Everything I ever say, and if, if, if any, this is so we can set it clear, anything I ever say as it pertains to, um, to, to my peers and, and, and um, being strapped is only in self-defense. You know what I'm saying? Because my, right now where I'm at, the world is harsh. And I just don't got no beautiful stories. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna just be getting them ready. Cause that's why I think I messed up. If somebody would have grabbed me, pulled me to the side and been like, look, Tupac, as soon as you step out here, they're gonna be at you. If somebody would have explained it to me, I wouldn't have took the same mistakes. But I made those mistakes. And that was my job to stop somebody else from making those same mistakes. To lay it out. To lay out the real map on the world and how it is. Everything I'm saying is a warning, is a, is a, is a plea for help. If everybody is so worried about me, why ain't nobody came to help me? You know what I'm saying? I never wanted to be no star. This ain't my job. I don't care if everybody don't cheer for me. You know what I'm saying? If you're not cheering for me for what I'm doing, don't cheer for me. Don't cheer because you think I'm cute. You know what I'm saying? Screw that. Cheer for me for what I'm doing, for what I stand for. And when I go to jail, you should cheer louder. We, we are living in a war zone. It's not as easy as these people are making us think that they just got some criminal black kids with guns. It is not like that. We live in hell. We live in the gutter. We got us stacked up 80 deep in one building. You know, by the time you get out your house, you strapped to protect yourself because you're living in the same community that the police is carrying rifles and riot gear. Same. They need them right. Excuse my language. I'm so sorry. The same reasons they need the riot hat, the riot jacket, the flak jacket, the double vest, the nine millimeter glocks with extra bullets, the tear gas, the mace, all that. Who do you think the police is using that against? Dogs? We fighting the same villains that they fight in the street. But instead of them seeing us fighting villains in the street, we all villains. You know what I'm saying? And the main thing for us to remember is that the same crime element that white people are scared of, black people are scared of. The same crime element that white people fear, we fear. So we defend ourselves from the same crime element that they scared of. You know what I'm saying? While they waiting for, to, for legislation to pass and everything, we next door to the killer. We next door to him, you know, because we up in projects where it's 80 in the building. All them killers that they letting out, they right there in that building. But it's better just because we black, we get along with the killers or something. We get along with the rapists because we black and we from the same hood. What is that? We need protection too. What would a Vietnam vet be like without a sergeant, without any backup, without any other soldiers, nobody but a Vietnam vet in Vietnam, when he came home, how would he be? And that's me. I had to go through all that street, war, everything, the same drugs that everybody else get turned out on. You know, where I would have been stopped shorted, I made it pass. And here's where I am. But because I made it pass, I missed some lessons. You know what I'm saying? And you can see the lessons that I miss when you talk to me. You can see where, where I haven't had a father when you talk to me. You know what I'm saying? You can see where I spent a lot of my time in the streets when you talk to me. Because the words that I say are not words that come from a mother's mouth or a father's mouth. It's words that come from a pimp's mouth or a prostitute or a hustler or a drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? But to me, these were my role models. I, um, I know for a fact that had I had a father, 
how to have someone, and I hate saying this because white people love hearing black people talk about this, but had I had a father, had I had some of these opportunities, I'd have been able to help my mother more. She wouldn't have went the road she went. I could have been a better son. You know what I'm saying? She wouldn't have went that road. It was the absence of my father. You know what I'm saying? I'm dealing with him being daddy not being there. My mother's dealing with him being my man not being there. You know, so many problems in our community that, that um, affect everything. So by me not having that, I ain't never want to hear nothing about no kind of relationships between a black man and a black woman. I knew they didn't work. Because as far as I knew, my daddy was the coolest dude out there. And my mama was a panther. So if they didn't work, it don't work. That's how I felt. You know what I'm saying? And going out there, you know what I'm saying? It's like watching my mother just go through changes and everything. It's like my mother's my partner. She a soldier. You know, she a soldier like I'm a soldier. You know, and I, I watched the, the peak, the game that she went through. If I, I would have went the same way my mother went had not she did her route and showed me which, where it went wrong with her. My mother always told me, don't you ever, ever just um, volunteer yourself to our people because they'll use you. That's what they do. You know what I'm saying? She never, she also told me to uh, follow my heart and for me to be the leader. So. I feel like I'm doing God's work. You know what I'm saying? Just because I don't have nothing to pass around for people to put money in the bucket don't mean I ain't doing God's work. I feel like I'm doing God's work. You know what I'm saying? Because these ghetto kids ain't God's children. And I don't see no missionaries coming through there. You know what I'm saying? So I'm doing God's work. While Rev Reverend Jackson do his up in the middle class and he go to the White House and have dinner and pray over the president, I'm up in the hood, you know what I'm saying, doing my work with my fucks. And you're listening to a unique American voice. And we bring it to you unfiltered because I think at minimum your mind's changed about who Tupac is, what he writes about, and what he thinks about. I missed some lessons. Oh, he sure did. And he knows it. And you can see I didn't have a father. And here on this show, we talk about fatherlessness. White, black, Hispanic, any old kind of fatherlessness is brutal. And we're seeing this in white neighborhoods where there are no fathers, in Hispanic neighborhoods where there are no fathers, and nobody's really talking about it. But we are here on this show. Because we got big hearts, and we know Americans have big hearts and want to hear these stories. I ain't got no beautiful stories, he said. And that just about breaks your heart. Because you know it's true. Everything I'm saying is a warning. It's a plea for help. Tupac Shakur, a unique American voice, one of America's great artists. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Tupac Shakur's story, here on Our American Story. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. Something never change. And we continue here with our American stories. And this next story comes from a listener in Los Angeles, Joe Garabati. And before there was a kin. There was this man, and Greg Hengler is about to bring us the story of Chef Boyardee, whom Joe told us in his email, putting us on to this great story, that he last saw Chef Boyardee at his own grandmother's funeral back in Cleveland in the 1960s. Here's Greg with the story of Chef Boyardee. Chef Boyardee is one of the most familiar figures in the supermarket aisles. But you may be surprised to know that the smiling, mustachioed character in the white apron and towering chef's hat wasn't some corporate marketing concoction like Betty Crocker, Aunt Jemima, and Uncle Ben 
the man who graces cans of beefaroni and spaghetti and meatballs, Hector Boyardi, was a real person, and yes, that's his real picture. Here he is in a 1953 television commercial. Hello, may I come in? I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at two grocers. Born in 1897 in the northern Italian region of Piazienza, Boyardi supposedly used a wire whisk for a rattle and by the age of 11 was working as an apprentice chef at a local hotel. In 1914, 16-year-old Boyardi set sail for a new life with better opportunities in America and arrived at Ellis Island. He entered the kitchen at New York City's prestigious Plaza Hotel where his older brother Paul was a maitre d', and within a year, at just 17 years of age, he assumed the position of head chef. So talented was Boyardi that he directed the catering for the wedding reception of President Woodrow Wilson and his second wife, Edith, that same year. Two years later, the chef moved to Cleveland to run the kitchen at the Hotel Winton, and in 1924, Boyardi opened a restaurant of his own with his newlywed wife, Helen. Chef Boyardi's grandniece is Anna Boyardi. She's a TV producer and cookware designer who took on the role of family historian when she published Delicious Memories, Recipes, and Stories from the Chef Boyardi family in 2011. Here's Anna and cookbook author Nathan Mirvold. My name is Anna Boyardi, B-O-I-A-R-D-I. <laughs> Chef Boyardee was a real person. Um, the man that you know on the can is Chef Boyardee was my great uncle. Boyardee was a food revolutionary because he made it possible for people that could never have gotten to his restaurant, wouldn't have cooked uh, a pasta sauce themselves, but they could buy a can of it. The company was actually founded by my grandfather and my two great uncles. Italian food in the 20s was not as common as it is today. People were always asking, well, how do I make this at home? And they would give customers some pasta to take home and a little tomato sauce and give them a little cheese and explain how to properly cook the pasta. Everyone thought it was great. And they decided that they are going to start canning their tomato sauce and selling it in supermarkets across America. Boyardi recognized this business opportunity when his takeout revenue began to eclipse the dine-in revenue. A couple of the chef's regular patrons who owned a local grocery store chain helped him design a canning process and find a national distributor. To meet the growing demand, Boyardi and his brothers built a small processing plant and launched Chef Boyardi's food company in 1928. The company's first product was a pre-packaged spaghetti dinner in a cardboard carton. Today, I want to tell you about a wonderful dinner for three. A dinner that only cost about 15 cents a serving. It's my own Chef Boyardi spaghetti dinner with meat sauce or mushroom sauce. It all comes in one carton. A full half pound of tender, quick cooking spaghetti, 10 full ounces of rich, tasty sauce, and to top it off, a whole can of zippy grated cheese. A wonderful food. The product sold well, but Boyardi soon discovered a problem. His American customers and salesmen struggled with the pronunciation of his last name. So the chef decided to change it to the phonetic Boy R.D. 
Boyardi said, Everyone is proud of his own family name, but sacrifices were necessary for progress. The company's low-cost but tasty meals became popular during the Depression and helped to make Italian food a mainstay in the United States. But it wasn't the chef's sauce that made Boyardee the household name that it is today. We can thank the U.S. military for that. Here's food historian Jack Turner and Anna Boyardee. We are going to win this war. World War II was a hugely significant event in the food chain because these ration packs, all of these processed foods were, if you like, developed to meet a need, to meet a need of armies that were far away that needed to be fed. At the beginning of World War II, Chef Boyardee is granted the commission to produce rations. All of what's considered civilian production, so that supermarket production, is halted, and the factory is converted to aid in the war effort and is now running 24 hours a day. By the end of the war, Chef Boyardee had become the largest supplier of rations to the U.S. and Allied forces. He was awarded the Gold Star Order of Excellence from the United States War Department, one of the highest honors a civilian can receive in honor of the company's wartime efforts. But the question was now, without the demand, what were they going to do with their supply, their workforce, and their massive factories? Chef Boyardee made the difficult decision to sell the company in 1946 to the American Home Products conglomerate for nearly $6 million. Here's food historian Andrew F. Smith and Jack Turner. Chef Boyardee puts the spaghetti and meatballs together and puts them in a can, puts a picture of it on the outside of this. Here's this professional saying, you can serve this in your home, and it becomes one of the more successful products that are made in America. Chin chin. It's a great story. After the war, the sort of main arguments, if you like, of the food industry was that all you needed to do was open a can. Cooking was for the past. Boyardi remained a consultant with the company until 1978 and continued to appear in advertisements. In fact, Boyardi became one of the first celebrity chefs to appear in print advertisement and television commercials. And with no artificial flavors, colors, or preservatives in the classic pasta dishes such as beef ravioli and lasagna, Chef Boyardi is a meal you can serve with the same pride that the chef did in World War II. So ask your grocer for Chef Boyardi's spaghetti dinner with meat or mushroom sauce, won't you? And look for other Chef Boyardi's products. They're also delicious, they're also nourishing, and they help keep the cost of your meals down. Chef Boyardi's products are at best grocers. Ask for Chef Boyardi's spaghetti dinner. Only about 15 cents a serving. The chef died of natural causes on June 21st, 1985, at the age of 87. Today... Chef Boyardee defines Italian cooking in America, so much so that Italian food hardly registers as ethnic cuisine for most Americans. Hector Boyardee was a big part of that, and on supermarket shelves around the world, his smiling face lives on. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always to Greg Hengler, and thanks to Joe Garibaldi, a listener of ours in Los Angeles. By the way, if you have a story for us like this one, please send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We love them and will do them, as you just heard. 
And my goodness, we learned a lot about, well, somebody we didn't even know actually really existed. And indeed, Chef Boyardee did. A couple of big ones. He changed his name. Really smart. Ralph Lipschitz changed his name, too. He became Ralph Lauren. And we did that story, and I think you'll love it. He also helped popularize Italian food, but how he did it was helping our boys, feeding our boys in World War II. He won a gold star order of excellence for being one of the largest suppliers in the war effort in World War II. Chef Boyardee's story, here on Our American Story. Cooking, gonna cook some lunch, yeah. Cause I got a hunch, girl. You're hungry too. is our American stories and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it we do it all year round because the men deserve it and we talk about men present and men and women past who served some who've paid the ultimate price and for this one we turn to General John Kelly he spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation this was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the walking dead from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days, and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him, and he supported them as well, on $13,000 a year. Herder was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, 
And because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, Sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. If you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away, and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Craparata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Coast Guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, for it reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. With tears welling up, he said to me, Sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us.
What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from when the truck entered the valley until it exploded, six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, this Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. Took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact, if they'd have known, that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder width apart, they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only, at this point, one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country, or their flag, or about their lives, or their deaths. But more than enough time for two very brave young men, like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses, two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families who have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American, 
that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty <clears throat> into eternity. Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herders, and that's General John Kelly. Their last six seconds revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and from everything in between. And we love telling stories about American Dreamers. And as always, our American Dreamers series is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard to help effectuate policies that turn small businesses into bigger ones. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Bill Austin, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. No one had ever paid for a quarter of school for me. I had to earn my own money, and I took a job making earpieces for hearing aids. I didn't really expect at all to be in the hearing aid business. I thought it was a boring nothing business. I was going to be heroic and save lives as a doctor and what do I care about old people? I was going to be with the young nurses in the hospital <laughs> doing great things. And uh, But an old man came in and no one was able to help him and they asked me if I could take a look at him and I did. And when I saw what it meant in his eyes, that was my first like real direct contact with somebody helping them with hearing. And when I saw what that meant to him, it was like giving him life. I went home to uh, 2770 Dean Boulevard down by the Calhoun Beach Hotel where I was staying and I had a cot upstairs and I went upstairs, sat on the edge of the cot. I do remember on the way home, there was a quote in the cantilever of the bus that struck me and I lived my life kind of in that direction and said, the true path to humility is not to stoop till you're lower than yourself, but rather to stand at your true height against some greater nature that will show the real smallness of your greatest greatness. And that's how I felt. I didn't want to be falsely humble. I wanted to be challenged like that by some greater nature. I got home and I sat on the cot. And as I sat on the edge of the cot, I started talking out loud to myself, just like I was talking to somebody, but there was no one there. And I said, Bill, the reason you want to be a doctor is so you can help people. If you do this work, you'll be able to help people and you won't kill anyone. As a doctor, you're sure to kill many. And I realized something that I hadn't seen before. I saw the future and knew what I wanted to be part of. I realized at that moment, I said, Bill, how many people can you help a day as a doctor? 20, 25, night will fall, no one will be coming then, you'll wake up the next day and it'll be again 
serving those people that you can serve. If you work with teams of people, the hands of many. Coming together in a business, your products and services can touch an unlimited number of people. You'll have the leverage to move the world. And I wanted to be part of that team. I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to run it. I've always felt like no one works for me, I work with them. I just saw that as the future and I had to go to work to get to the future. And so the first thing I did, the only asset I had was a little rental house that I'd made money during the Korean War, scrap metal was valuable, and I took the axe to many a vintage car. I chopped them up and sold them for scrap, and I made enough money to invest in a little rental house. And that's all I had was that little rental house. So I sold that house, and that was the money I used to start the business. I had $3,000, and I had to make a profit before I ran out of money. I'd read books that said, uh, well, you know, you got to expect to have financing for the first five years, or it'll be at least three years before you're profitable when you start a new business. Well, I figured I had three months. I didn't have a choice. I was down to the last money to meet my cost that week at the end of three months. And the next week, the checks arrived more than enough to cover that week, and I barely made it. I'd receive an order. I said, you know, hearing is the connection to the family and life, and who knows, this might be a graduation or a, a wedding of a child or something for this person's hearing aid that we're servicing. So at the end of the day, the last pickup of mail was about 5.30 or so in front of our facility. If there was one order that was completed after the mail pickup, just even one order, I would always put it in the car, drive it downtown to the main post office, go to the back up on the dock, ask the guys working there which box was going out, which was being processed next, and I would put it in that gurney to make sure that that hearing aid was moving back to the person who needed it. There wasn't as much profit in that transaction as the gas that it took to go there and come back. But to me, the most important thing was to not let down someone who trusted me with that service. And I wanted to do the best I could every single time. And I got stacks of letters from people saying they never received service like this. And the word spread. And so our business grew rapidly. And what a voice, Bill Austin's. And it's like so many of our American dreamers' stories. Starting out with nothing, 
taking that little rental house and taking a chance. And in the end, really providing a service to people, changing their lives. Hearing aids doesn't seem so glamorous. It didn't seem so glamorous to Bill. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Bill Austin's story. He's the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies. His story, here on Our American Stories. stories and Bill Austin's story, and Bill picks up things with the story of how hearing loss used to be addressed many decades ago. Um, you know, the cupped hand, <laughs> a horn from an animal, the wide surface of a fan, the sound would strike it and you could hold it in your teeth and uh, the vibration would go through your teeth and stimulate the other ear. There was acoustic chairs that would pick up uh, like in lion's mouth the sound and you could have a, a discreet tube you'd stick in your ear. There hearing canes people would walk with and then they'd hold their cane up and try to talk to you. There, there were all kinds of non-electric things made in the 1800s. At the turn of the century, Miller Reese Hutchins in Mobile, Alabama had developed the Acousticon, an electronic hearing aid, which was used at a coronation in Great Britain. They were A and B batteries. You'd strap something on your leg. Uh, you'd have something under your clothes, and then you'd have a giant microphone, which would be about that big around. You'd wear outside on your chest to hear with, and big, thick black cords running up to the ear. And so the aids used to be uh, large. You'd, sometimes you'd carry them. Some of the electronic aids you'd have two people carry and put it in a room for a businessman to sit there and talk with. And then the transistor was developed in the 50s and hearing aids were one of the first things that transistors went into, actually. That made it possible to make them a lot smaller. We made eyeglass hearing aids that Eleanor Roosevelt wore in her glasses, the Otarian. Big, thick, huge bows. No one was supposed to know. I mean, the things were so thick. They were <laughs> thick. And, you know, they won't know I wear hearing aids because they're in my glasses. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't know. And they had barrette models that you could hide in your hair and earring models that were big, clunky-looking earrings that would clip on your ears. and. Uh, different ways to try to make hearing aids discreet and uh, they were pretty big. I felt, I could just feel people and I felt that they felt impaired and stigmatized because they were wearing something hanging outside and I said, that's like a crutch. If we can put it in the ear and if it's custom made for their ear, it'll be like part of them and they will feel better about the correction. And I looked at the space in the ear and I said, that's just unused space. I can take these parts that are strung out in mass-produced hearing aids and recombine them into the space. I can get them in the space. I can make these things. In 1961, I made the first 
really nice in the ear hearing aids. And that was considered, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. And people would call it an invention. I never called it an invention. As far as I was concerned, I was just reconfiguring components to fit in space that happened to exist in the ear. <laughs> Hearing Aid Magazine asked me, in 1979, what will be the future of the hearing aid business? And I said, there is no future because in the future, we will really be in the communication business, helping people communicate across barriers of language, distance, noise, to help people with normal hearing communicate and function better. 39 years later, in August of 2018, Starkey unveiled Livio AI, a hearing aid that does just that. Translate 27 languages, forwards and backwards, Russian to English, English to Russian, it doesn't matter. Starkey's relentless pursuit of innovation in service of their fellow man has led the company to grow to $650 million in annual revenue, making it the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America and leading Forbes to estimate Bill's personal net worth at $2.5 billion. Well, I had to go to work for money, I'd stay home. I, I just, it doesn't motivate me. It does not motivate me. I'm not interested. I haven't ever been interested. I knew I, it's unhandy to run out of it, and you have to treat it with respect and not waste it. But uh, as far as being motivated, somebody saying, this could be really big, you can have a really lot of money. I, like, I'm about as bored by that as I can imagine. What is exciting is to have the resources to say, yes, we can. And this Yes We Can is most seen in their Starkey Hearing Foundation, which is Bill's primary focus, not running the company. <laughs> They've given the gift of hearing to those who can't afford it in over 100 countries and to over 1 million people so far. So we uh, have an opportunity to earn from our service that we give to those who can pay and then if we do a really good job, we have enough left over that we can help those that need our help. And, you know, I usually manage to use up most of our money. I, I find good uses for it. I travel the world helping people with hearing aids. More than half the year I'm traveling because it's what I know how to do. I'll do thousands and thousands of hearing aids per year myself. I've listened to more hearing aids than anyone in the world many, many times over. And I could make more money, I guess, if I concentrated on work, but I wouldn't know life. So I trade money for life. You know, there's no other person that is president of a hearing aid company or CEO. None, not none in the world that would do what I do. For sure, there are six companies, soon to be five, that make 98% of the world's hearing aids. We're the only one in the US. The other ones, they never touch a patient. They've never fit a hearing aid in their lives, not one of them. Several layers down, it's all suits and business. There's none of them that would 
take the time to work on deformed ears. Like I took the time to detail those very difficult ears that were sent pictures of. They're just hugely deformed. I'll go over there after you leave and I'll cut the shells and then I'll go up and show the technician how to build them. Anyone else would say, my time's worth too much. That's just one little pair of hearing aids, one order. They would say, you know, I've got million dollar businesses to, to, to take care of here. I can't do that sort of thing. Well, I can do it. If you pay someone else to do it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm rich here, I, I feel guilty, so here's some money. But no one makes more time. When you give your time, you give yourself. Where does Bill Austin get this view on life? I couldn't rationalize the existence of God. I mean, I just couldn't rationalize it any way I think about it and think about it. And in my very early 20s, I was thinking about what God would tell me to do if he could talk, but I just kept trying to think for him. I never asked. And the greatest thing I ever did was ask. I don't know what possessed me to do that because I never had before. I just said, I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm going to accept on faith alone. That was the best thing I ever did. Because the direction I received was better than any idea I've ever had. It's given me life because I've been able to focus on what's really important. And so my idea of wealth, if you had to say, Bill, are you wealthy? It's not a, it's not a number in the billions. It's not a money. I'm wealthy if someone needs a hand up, if I can say, yes, I can, I, I'll help you. That lifts me up. I'm spiritually nourished by the work I do. I feel energized. And if I ever had to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I would feel poor. I would feel very poor. And my goodness, this is more than just a business or a startup or entrepreneur story. And again, this is what we've discovered doing these American Dreamers series. And they're, they're just, each time I hear them, I'm just more stunned each time. The generosity of these guys, the nature of the people, especially these founders. He, he wanted to solve a problem, and he did. People felt impaired and stigmatized from these large things hanging off their ears. And he goes, I just wanted to custom make them for their ears so it would become a part of them. And that changes someone's life. And then on top of that, here he is giving away over a million, again, a million hearing aids for nothing. For nothing. That's some social justice, folks. I mean, creating jobs, creating a tax base, solving a problem, and then giving away one million, one million hearing aids, which you could have charged someone for. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Austin's story, a part of our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with our American stories and Bill Austin's story. The billionaire hearing aid CEO who spends most of his time fitting hearing aids on individual customers. When the president of Burundi, we were there a few years ago, and I was fitting people in church at a congregation of 8,000, and they televised the service, and they asked me to come up to the church. I was fitting on the grounds behind the church and say something, and so I came and spoke to the congregation, and I, I stepped down, and the president got up, and he said, can you believe that the Starkey people came all the way from Minnesota to help us. And he said, and Bill Austin left his. And I knew, I knew the next word before he said it. I knew he was going to say he left his family to be with us. And, and I started, I said, no. And he goes ahead and says family. And I said, no, 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 that's wrong. I didn't leave my family. I came here that I might know the rest of my family. And that's just, the way I feel, that came out of me without me thinking about it. I had no control over my voice. This is the president of the country, and I'm interrupting him when he's talking on TV. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the audience. I was headed out the door to go back and fit hearing aids. And I, all of a sudden, I just started shouting, no, that's wrong. I, I didn't leave my family. Juarez, Mexico used to be one of the most dangerous border cities. When it was at the height of its bad problems, I went there. and. A woman came into this hospital where we were doing the mission with her grandson, who was about 13 years old. She said, I've been waiting a month for you to come. She didn't live there. She lived quite a ways away. And I said, well, why didn't you go home? And she said, I couldn't because I might have missed you. And she said, I, I can't live much longer and my grandson won't be able to take care of himself if he can't hear. When I had the boy hearing good, you should have seen that woman's face. It went from all of this weight of the world on her to just total light. It was like she was happy that she could die. To see someone truly happy that they could die. She had been willing herself to stay alive because she knew her grandson, who was an orphan, couldn't take care of himself. He had no one else. I saw a woman in El Salvador, early 30s, and her kidneys failed. She lost her eyesight. Her hearing was fading out. And they asked her if she had any last wishes. And she said, I would like to thank the people who have cared for me. I, I, I need to hear to be able to thank the people. And they said, well, someone's coming. We were coming in about three weeks. There's someone coming with hearing aids, but you won't be able to live that long. And she said, yes, I will. And she did. They brought her in in a wheelchair. I fit her with hearing aids. Probably about the only time that tears were just running down my cheeks. Because of the nobility of this woman. Not asking for something for herself, but just wanting to be able to thank people. She was so happy. She did thank them. She lived another over two weeks. 
before she died. I learn from every patient I work on because I really care. I've done like six U.S. presidents and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, two popes. I mean, I work on everybody. Movie stars, Steve Martin, Ozzy was just here, Charlton Heston, to whoever. The people that I used to watch, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, when I was a kid, little boy, they, they become my friends. Billy Graham used to say, Bill's my best friend from Minnesota, and Gene Autry would said I was his best friend. The only thing he was buried with was something I gave him that he treasured more than anything else. You know, I fit Robert Schuller and Hugh Hefner the same day. I have no barriers. And so people really respond to being cared about. And some people, even though they're really important, like movie stars and rock stars and celebrities, they have people chasing them all the time because of who they are, wanting their picture with them, wanting this, wanting that. I don't want anything, and they know it. And to have someone care about them who's not looking for something is very special to them. Special to them to feel that, to be cared about without, what am I gonna get? I'm gonna get my picture with this guy, I'm gonna get to go to his rock concert, I'm gonna get something. And I'll be invited to go to rock concerts and things by people who come here, and, and I don't go because I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. So they recognize that. So we're on uh, kind of on the same plane, person to person, instead of them being in the celebrity world and me being a celebrity chaser. They'd like to relate to some people in their lives like that. You know, Warren Buffett came here one day to get hearing aids and the day he came, I'd just flown in a whole plane load of kids from the Idaho School for the Deaf. And I'd fit the kids in Oregon at School for the Deaf and Washington School for the Deaf. I got home and Idaho said, what about us? And I said, well, I can't come back, but I'll charter a plane and bring the whole school down. And I was working on them and Warren came in and so I'm gonna take care of anybody that shows up. And so I'm detailing impressions over there on that motor, and then I was cutting shells over here. And Warren comes up watching me, and I said, would you like to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, I said, let's have lunch. I said, well, the cafeteria is right up that ramp. Go up there and you can find anything you want to eat, Warren. And I could see the disappointment in his face, and I said, Warren, the conference room is open, just bring your tray in there. So he thought I was gonna join him. Well, anyway, he comes in here, and I'm busy cutting aids for the shells. And so I told Mark McCarthy, I said, go in there and talk to Warren while he's having lunch. And he came out, and he's frustrated because he can't get my attention. So he pulls out this big, thick billfold. It's like almost three inches thick. It's huge, thick wallet and he holds it out in front of me and I'm down there cutting shells and he said, do you want Warren's money? And I said, no, I don't need Warren's money. <laughs> he wanted to buy my company because he couldn't get my attention. And the company isn't for sale and I don't want to sell it. And I told him, I said, it wouldn't be the same. 
They're looking at what's your return, what's the shareholder return, what are you making? I'm giving a lot away. That wouldn't go over so big. I could have sat here and had lunch with a guy. Some people pay a couple million dollars to have lunch with him. He came to me and I didn't have lunch with him. And the reason I didn't have lunch with him is why had some poor kids that no one knows from Idaho that needed my help. So what am I going to do? Neglect them because some big deal is here? And what a what a story. Uh, Warren Buffett has a net worth of over $80 billion, and yet Bill Austin didn't treat him any differently. He was busy fitting hearing aids for the kids at that Idaho school for the deaf, and then he helped Warren Buffett. And I just love that he said, look, there are people paying a million dollars to have lunch with this guy, but not me. Oh, and by the way, Warren, my business isn't for sale. It's not for sale. When we come back, more of this remarkable American voice, and this is a distinctly American voice, Bill Austin's story, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. Continue with our American stories in the final portion of this remarkable life story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin. Well, I think the shaping of my life began with my grandparents living with them during World War II. My parents were off working in a munitions plant in another state. But I asked my grandfather about his father who died when I was a baby. And he said, well, the thing that struck him about his father wasn't what he did as much as the way he did it. He said, for instance, when he was eight years old, some people moved in three and a half miles from them. And his father heard that they had uh, children, but they had no cow. And he told his son Franklin, my grandfather, which was his youngest son, and the most expendable, he said, Frank, uh, those children will need milk. You take our best cow and walk her over there so the children will have milk. And Frank did that, my grandfather, and he came uh, back and he said what he noticed was he never mentioned ever to anyone anything about giving those folks a cow. And that struck him. He said he noticed that he never sought the people out to say, I'm the great guy that sent the cow to you. He said it was simply a matter for him that the children needed milk and he had more than one cow so he could help. So as he told me about his father, his father was an orphan in the Civil War. His family had been massacred by raiders and uh, They'd burned the farmstead to the ground and stole the horses and cattle and 
This boy had run into the bushes at five years old. He was the only survivor. He didn't even know what state they came from. The only thing he knew was his name. He had nothing, he had no one. Uh, the lieutenant, when he saw he was the only survivor, stopped the pursuit and took him to a place of safety on the James River. To a mill, the first place he could drop this boy off safely and with a miller that had one leg called Peg Leg Nelson. And uh, Peg Leg uh, let the boy sleep in the mill and work for his keep. And so he made him a bed of straw in the mill and he worked there until he was 15 years old and was never paid a cent. But in those days at 15, it was time to leave and strike out on your own. And he didn't know what to do, how that could happen because he had no money, no place to get started, knew no one. And the lieutenant who found him so happened passed away. And the lieutenant had willed this boy the land he earned for serving on the Union side in the Civil War. My great-grandfather took that land and became a successful farmer and raised a fine family. And that's why I have a chance at life today is because that happened. Now, the land wasn't worth much. Land was almost free and those cheap in those days. But it meant the world to that young man that someone gave him that chance. So, you know, I used to not be able to talk about the lieutenant because I thought it was so noble that he would care. He could have given it to a relative, the land, to a friend, someone else that would have said, that's my great friend, the lieutenant, and got some recognition for it. But instead he gave it to someone who couldn't thank him, couldn't do anything for him because he knew the boy needed a chance. So I, you know, I thought that was incredibly noble. I wanted to live my life with some kind of contribution to life itself. So I admired him. I wanted to be like him. And yet Bill couldn't bring himself to publicly talk about him for decades. Well, I'd choke up and cry because of the lieutenant. What's wrong with crying? Oh, well, you know, men aren't supposed to cry in front of people, in front of audiences. And I, I, if I tried to tell the story, I just, I just, I couldn't talk. And then I realized I needed to because I decided it was a good example. Because this one person did what he could without getting recognition or being paid, today we affect millions of people because of one act of caring. So I like to say we can't afford to miss a chance to do that because one simple act might be so significant for the world. It might keep your own great-grandchildren from being killed by terrorists. It might, it might, who knows what it might do if you continue down the path of respect for life and caring and what might happen if you didn't. So I used to think it was the lieutenant. That's when I first stopped and it went there. And then I realized, well, it wasn't the lieutenant. It was the person who cared about the lieutenant who made him want to do that. And then, well, it was the person who cared about that person. And then I realized it went all the way back to his love. God's love. That he gave us, that started the whole thing. 
That's what makes people different. That's what gives us our true humanity, is that spiritual enrichment we get from knowing God's love. And I believe that's why I was told that my responsibility was to reflect, use hearing to reflect his love so people might know him. I think you know him from feeling that caring through other people, not directly. It's through people. So that's my idea. I'm not saying that I know. I'm not a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. And I don't want to say that that's what God is telling anyone to do. I just know that's what I feel. In 2010, right after the earthquake in Haiti, well, I was in Haiti. Miley Cyrus was with me. And Miley's over fiddling with her phone at this Catholic school. And we're fitting kids with hearing aids. And I said, what's she doing? And they said, well, she's tweeting her followers. And I don't carry a phone. That's another thing that's weird that I don't do. So I'm not looking at text. I've never seen our website. Not once. I don't know what's on it. I don't know how to look for it. I don't know what it would be on it. I, I mean, I suppose... It's really lovely. Is it's it? a nice website. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess I'm always busy and no one's ever showed it to me. And So, anyway, Miley says she's tweeting that this is the best day of her life. And I said, well, that's what everyone says. That's what President Clinton says, that's what Ray Lewis says, that's what athletes, movie stars, presidents, everybody says this is the best day of their life. Uh, Ray Lewis, right after he won the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and he, he was the most valuable player, and he goes on a mission with us in March. And he said, I've been given a job by ESPN, but this is the best day of my life. I want to do this. This is I've never done anything this good. We're in Tanzania and Africa. They all say that. And so I said, well, that's what everyone says. And I started thinking, billions of followers, that's it. Because I felt like a failure. Uh, you know, the Twin Towers go down, there's terrorism here and there around the world, and I felt like I was losing ground, like we weren't reflecting light as fast as the darkness was encroaching. And I wasn't going to get the job done. And then I realized, I said, hey, with this, we can affect a consciousness shift with so many followers that admire these people and think about what they're saying. We could compound the message to more and more people and try to get more and more people addicted to good virus. And so I thought that I see the way. So I went home from that experience and I started thinking virtually every day. I really like my job and I think I know how to do it now if I only had more time. I wish I had more time, but I would never pray for it because I thought I had no right to ask for anything for myself. Because my only prayer every day in the morning before I would leave to work would be for his direction so I might serve better than I've ever served before. God's will be done. 
And great job, as always, to Alex. He does a superb job on this series. And thanks again to Job Creators Network. And they work hard to fight for the policies that help small business owners grow and hire more people and have more impact on the world. And my goodness, there is just so much here to unpack. But what we did learn here is the power of a story, folks. Him listening to his grandfather, the grandfather telling him about this lieutenant. And never having met this man, he wanted to be like this man. And that is the power of stories. It's their imitative power. And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories. Give you stories worthy of imitation. The world doesn't have enough of those. They need a lot more. And we try to do that for you each and every day here. He said, we can't afford to miss a chance. Who knows what it might do? And what might happen if you didn't? God's love. That's what he was talking about here. And his responsibility to use hearing aids to reflect God's love. So, well, he might know him and we might know him. I'm not a preacher, he said. But my goodness, he's a minister. And he's got a ministry, for sure. Bill Austin's story, the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Stories.